0: Hi everyone, it's Lauren hawker Zafra. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. I'm an educator and I'm taking you on an educational exploration into the fascinating minds of those that embody and forefront all you need to know about artificial intelligence, machine learning, insight engines, and emerging tech. Today, we're placing spotlight on generative AI in the future of work in an exciting episode called Generative AI and the Knowledge Worker. And to discuss this, I've been joined by Krish Ramanini. Krish is the co-founder and CEO of Fireflies.ai, an AI voice assistant that helps transcribe, take notes, and complete actions during meetings. Now, Krish, he graduated from UpIn and was one of the youngest product managers at Microsoft, where he led projects about customer voice and growth engineering. Chris, he guest lectured at Stanford on deep learning and machine learning and is an early stage startup advisor. Now, as you know, we like to overhaul definitions and cliches on redefining AI, and we really want to encourage authentic expression and conversation. Now with this, I'm sure that our entrepreneurial Firefly CEO is going to help us here today. So welcome, Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us um, here on Redefining AI.
1: Thanks, Lauren. I'm excited to be here. And likewise, very interesting topic to dive into, very timely. So looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a very interesting topic. And I do think um, you've hit the nail on the head when you've used the word timely. Um, I mean, you join us from, from the San Francisco Bay Area today, Chris. How would you describe the vibe in the area at the moment? I mean, there's a lot happening. The tech industry, I mean, it seems like it's in a lull. It's plagued by this widespread um, sort of layoff. And there's also a down economy. Um, But I also think that the air of doom seems to be shadowed by an overarching feeling of optimism, is there not? And I'm maybe talking about the new darling of Silicon Valley, which is uh, generative AI.
1: Definitely every time there is some form of recession, it's also a good time or new opportunity for companies to come out of it. And we've seen this during 2008 recession with a lot of the sharing economy companies like Airbnb, Uber, grew into these massive, massive uh, tech giants at that time. And it was very much coincided with the launch of the iPhone, the App Store, and all these apps that were being built on that ecosystem, right? And generative AI is that same sort of opportunity that I see for companies where, yes, some of the larger companies are laying off, but you have this new technology, new this new innovation, more entrepreneurial excitement is going to be coming around this. I recently heard from some folks uh, from Y Combinator where almost every one of the companies in the current cohort is doing something related to generative AI, which is very interesting, right? Or even existing companies that had nothing to do with generative AI are tagging that title on and working and incorporating that sort of technology. So I think the opportunities are limitless. One thing I would say is that it's still a very, very early time period for this and a lot of exploration that's being happening. And uh, there haven't been any real big breakthrough startups in this space, You obviously have like the big platform creators like OpenAI, which a lot of the companies are built on top of. Um, There's been a handful of companies in image processing and content generation like Jasper and uh, Stable Diffusion, which have come out. But for the large part, most of the cool hacks that you see online or people sharing their experiences with ChatGPT is just a starting point right now. I think 90% of that will be just that very simple, gimmicky things. But over time, we can see some really true enterprise value being created.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of things that um, you forefronted there are quite interesting. A couple of points that I'd pick up on or a couple of of words would be like, you know, this new innovation, this breakthrough. Do you think it's the breakthrough that a lot of, as you've mentioned, startups see as an opportunity to be able to make their mark? I mean, what is it about this this new darling, this new technology that promises an opportunistic way forward in, in the tech ecosystem?
1: One is the barrier for using machine learning, deep learning technology has all of a sudden become lowered. This happened in the past when you had operating systems, compute engines, transistors, Moore's law, like all of the same sort of effects, but now for AI. And I think AI is a place where it can have a compounding effect and go maybe even faster than Moore's Law. So one thing is you can be a small startup, a two-person, three-person company that can build some groundbreaking groundbreaking technology leveraging all of this stuff. So I saw a demo very recently on Twitter where these folks were putting together and building a hackathon and they were using some really powerful things. So a few years ago, Google shared Google duplex, which is where you can call this assistant and it will make reservations for you at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Very powerful technology. That was about maybe four or five years ago. Today, with this generative AI technology, two engineers in a couple hours were able to recreate that same thing, right? So the barrier has definitely decreased and we're going to be able to see more robust, powerful technology uh, not possible before. I've been working in this space since about 2016. So I've seen a lot of ups and downs with AI. Everyone says, like AI is here, it's ready to stay, but sometimes we were premature even back in 2016. One notable thing was chatbots, Slack bots, conversational agents was very, very popular right when I was talking. I remember one of my first conferences that I went to, where I was a speaker talking about how voice and chat is going to be the new interface and i might have been five years too early right in terms (laughs) of making that prediction but with gpt3 and these conversation models i think we're much closer now it took a long time to cross that innovators curve or dilemma or whatever you would call it uh but now you can really have that and the testament to that is Chat GPT, right? 100 million users in just a few months. People are having endless conversations. Bing deploys this massive new way to search and have conversations with a chat assistant. So yeah, barrier has decreased. People are becoming more accepting of this methodology. It's not something that happened in a vacuum. This has been happening for years. It's just the technology is ready now for prime time.
0: Mm -hmm. And with the um, accessibility, you mentioned that we're closer to maybe what we first saw as being a breakthrough point five, six years ago. What do you think, in your own opinion, does the introduction of generative AI mean concretely for the software market? Can you foresee something yourself?
1: Specifically speaking for enterprise software, work productivity software, which is where I work. Mm-hmm. In, I would say every software piece can be rebuilt from the ground up. Historically, we've had systems of record, systems where we have to go do the work, put in data into those systems. Now we can do have the systems do the work for us, right? The common example is uh, I can have a system that helps me write my articles and blogs and documents and all all sorts of things. I can have systems that can go back and pull through repositories and provide me answers. So that is something that is really the turning point, is we don't have to just enter all this data. We can actually make sense of this data, utilize it, and have the system do some of this work. Specifically at Fireflies, what we look at when it comes to generative AI, There's three paths. One is knowledge retrieval. So you're able to do some forms of knowledge uh, extraction. So, for example, from a meeting, uh, if you have information, you can just ask our AI assistant, Hey, what did so and so say about X topic or X issue? What did so and so say? Were there strengths during this interview, uh, recruiting interview? So that's knowledge extraction. That's one thing. There is content creation, like what Jasper and some of these other folks are doing, where they can create great content, articles, copies, ads, uh, even like with Stable Diffusion and Dolly, being able to create new content. I loved using MidJourney earlier where you can create AI art. Uh, Lenza used uh, AI avatars and they launched that in a, a few months back, generated millions of dollars of revenue in just a few months with, you know, creating these AI avatars went viral. So content creation is another category that I would look at. The third category that I would look at uh, for this generative AI space is taking actions or automations. So how can I actually have a system do the work for me? I saw an example where someone gave the system a command. This was again a project where they said, "Hey, go buy me boots on Amazon." And it would go into Amazon and then know what to buy and purchase that uh for you. Or it would go in and write an Excel command for you that can run all these financial models for you. So, yeah, those are the three things that I look at in terms of what this category seems like today. I'm sure more things will come up in the future, but really comes down to the idea of knowledge and search, content creation, and automations and actions.
0: Excellent. And out of those three, I mean, knowledge, retrieval, content creation or extraction, automation, and actions, it sounds like they excite you as well. Or maybe you look at it from a different state. Perhaps there's a scarier reality that we're not aware of out of those or are they all very beneficial in an enterprise setting for the knowledge worker? Is there any barriers to, or is there higher barriers to one out of the three?
1: I think with content creation, there is a huge gray area, and we're starting to see some of these things come up as well. So for example, if people are writing code using Copilot or some of these tools, the question then comes up, right? How much of this code is copyrighted? Or Who has ownership over it? Is it using and sourcing it with the right licenses? So the idea of, are we plagiarizing? Are we taking from other places? So we've seen even uh, artists talk about, hey, don't use these AI image generation tools because they're stealing art from us and they're replicating it. So we're having a very blurry line and I'm very curious what will happen with regulation as it catches up and what people will think about in this area, I was at an event with a bunch of open AI folks. We were having a conversation about, you know, it's a very important decision for these companies to choose what type of data to train their models on, right? You don't want to accidentally take data that you don't have permissions for, right? Maybe it's not in public domain. There are certain books that you're not able to train chat GPT on, for example, right? So I think content creation, as powerful as it may seem, I'm very curious like what those laws are. So these are gonna be completely different challenges around data. And my answer to that, at least in the enterprises, the companies that have proprietary data sets are going to be the ones that win. So in our case, we're focusing on meeting notes and transcription and like meeting generated, user generated data that is going to be used to purely help them, right? We're not taking things from outside sources. So we don't have that sort of issue. But if you're a consumer company and you're scraping, let's say, Yelp reviews, or yeah. you're pulling things uh, on other sites, or you're feeding in things that you're not supposed to to create content, then that becomes questionable, right? In terms of who has ownership and stuff. So, enterprises, if they're focusing on their unique data sets, that's going to be really helpful. Also, if everyone is training and using the same data source that's publicly available, what is going to be the differentiator between the different companies that are working on it? So is it just a little AI wrapper? Or are you having some sort of unique user experience advantage? Or is it just that a lot of these tools are going to be very identical and very similar, right? So this is another question that we have to think about. And the third part is with a lot of this technology is the AI can hallucinate. We've been seeing things about how it can go wrong or it can go off the rails and say crazy things or generate crazy things. I've tried it like with having it answer SAT questions or GMAT questions. Sometimes it's really good. And other times it reasons to a completely wrong answer. So Mm -hmm. when it's doing math questions and stuff where you're asking it simple math questions, it's not able to do it. And if you ask it to go back and explain itself why it chose it, it says, my bad. I made a mistake. I corrected myself." So when it comes to computations and calculations, or even when it's writing things, right? It sounds very realistic, but the answers are very wrong or bogus or made up. So that's another challenge uh, we have to consider. The system is nowhere perfect. When Mm -hmm. it's good, it's magical, it's excellent. But when it's bad, it's not usable, right? So how do you balance that line? This is gonna be challenges that every company that's using this technology is going to have to leverage.
0: So despite the advances in the technology, we're still going back from what it seems to the underlying problem of data and the challenges with data. You mentioned that you think that those that are using proprietary data, if we're looking at an enterprise setting, that there are maybe companies that are likely to maybe win a certain race, if we were to, to make that analogy or, or metaphor. Do you not think there's also a lot of skepticism that comes from enterprises when we're talking about the use of confidential or internal data? How do you think that argument or discussion will pan out around the use of proprietary data in a generative AI setting?
1: One thing is permissioning in user controls and access. So if I'm using data to help a customer. And if it's exclusively their data, and I'm not using another customer's data, or there is no spillover, then I think that is definitely going to be okay. And you're only using the systems that are there to help them versus pulling other data. So that's an important thing. The second part is unlike in the past, where you need millions of parameters, and you need to train on data sets and all of that. Now you can do zero shot learning, single shot learning, some things that are very proprietary and custom, like you don't need that much data. You just need specific examples. I also believe in personalization. That's like Mm -hmm. a really big opportunity. So one of the things we're experimenting with here at Fireflies is we have a general AI generated summary that is created after a meeting with transcripts. It can be bullet point notes. It can be paragraphs. You can pick and choose. We said, can we take that a step further and really provide customization? And What I know is every person takes notes in a very different way. Some people take shorthand notes, some people write little annotations. So what if we ask a user, tell us how you take notes, show us how you take notes, and we'll train the AI specifically for you, almost like a custom model for you at scale to take notes on your meetings the way you do, right? So that is a very personalized solution, unique to you. We're not going to be having to do... Like it wouldn't be valuable... For me to look at some other person's style of notes, right? So it's just unique to me. It makes sense to me. That is a huge advantage. So I think personalization is possible with uh, GPT-3. The other problem with with this AI hallucinating or coming up with random stuff, when you pick specific problems that you want to solve for an enterprise, like for us, we're going very deep on meetings, knowledge retrieval, summarization. We can confine the variables and limit what it can do. So it's not going to go off on tangents and we can do a good job of controlling that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think privacy controls are really important, but everything we're doing at Fireflies is to make sure that whatever data we're using to help is going to be used exclusively for your data and for your use cases and not spill over to another company or another customer.
0: But it's just an interesting thought. So let's take that component of personalization. And if we look at the personalization that you've um, highlighted there in the sense that you've outlined that people take notes differently, how is it possible then? And again, we're looking at it from maybe more of a technological angle, like computational processing. How is it possible with, you mentioned GPT-3 and the personal data, let's say, if I were to interact with the system, how is that possible? What tech allows that?
1: Great question. So if I had to do this exact same thing in the past, right, I would have to do some sequence-to-sequence models. I would have to maybe use certain types of classifiers. I would have to use almost a million parameters, hundreds of thousands of parameters, and still wouldn't be good. So that is something that is mind-blowing in terms of what GPT-3 can do, where I've done some of these tests almost a year back as well, where if you can provide context to the system, within the limited number of tokens, and then you ask it. I always think about this AI as, hey, this is like a 10-year-old, right? And there's different models, right? Like some of the top performing models are like 12-year-olds. Other models are like five-year-olds. And eventually with GPT-4 and above, we might get to like some smart teenager level thing where it it starts to make some of those decisions on its own. So when you have a 10-year-old, the best thing you can do is show them examples and then say, hey, go and try to replicate it like this. This morning, I was trying out a tool that was really, really cool, where it's like stable diffusion and it's like Dolly. But instead of me just giving a text prompt and saying, hey, go draw a picture of a lion that is jumping over the moon, I can literally scribble, right, and draw an image of a lion and a moon. And then I can say, hey, here's an image of a lion and I'm jumping over a moon. Go and draw that and animate that. So it's taking my visual, personal, like my drawing style, where the images are placed. And it's also taking my vocal stuff to be able to generate that, right? And that all it took was a single data point. This technology, these large language learning models are trained on billions of parameters enough to where they just have to predict the next output, the next sentence, the next token. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what's so magical about this. And I remember some of these experts at OpenAI talking about how this is done. There were companies in the past raised tons and tons of money, hired PhDs, machine learning engineers, and they said, we're going to go solve this specific problem, and we're going to build this tailored model, and we're going to keep training it. You risk overfitting, you risk fine-tuning too much to the point where it doesn't work for certain use cases. They said, you know what, let's not go that granular. Instead, let's step back and then just build a general model and feed it tons of data and really, GPT3 is a reflection of humanity because it's trained on everything on the internet or a large portion of it. and it's just showing us a mirror of what we already do or what we already say. That's why sometimes it can be racist, it can say things that are unhinged, it can say things that are not right. but really, it's just showing us a mirror of what we talk about what we do. And so when it's looked at billions of photos or it's looked at billions of articles and uh, things on online, it's able to know. And what we deem to be creative work is actually pattern matching. And that was the crazy thing for me, that realization that unique creative stuff that humans do, which we thought machines could never do, that stuff is really like pattern matching, like music creation, lyrics creation, blog writing, all of that is pattern matching. And if you do it enough, 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 you can have that. So yeah, that's that's the large language learning models. That's the breakthrough. And also... There's a technological breakthrough with the different types of technology and the tensors and all, all the things that you're able to use, which have reduced the cost significantly to be able to train data at this scale, at this level. It's to a point where I feel like for OpenAI and some of these companies, they just had to say, okay, if I put X money in, train X model, we know it's going to have Y performance improvement. And that's all really it comes down to. Like Companies with a big war chest of money, tons of data... Well, Google, that's perfect. They have they've crawled the entire internet, right? And they have the resources to do it. So I also don't think it's going to be like one company is going to monopolize the space. There's just going to be a lot of other folks also doing this. But people have finally found out these large language models are going to work than these like hyper-specific uh models that people used to build in the past.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And I can certainly he- hear like the technologist in you, the innovator in you, and also this entrepreneurial spirit i think that if we're looking at it as a reflection of humanity because it is trained on the information that we have created in the past we can also now take the example of the tool that you tried out and we look at it from maybe a different angle as well so we see that there's quite a lot of common narratives as well that seem to have been somewhat magnified as well in the past few weeks Because we're not only looking at the positive from the side of the advancement in technology and the empowerment opportunities that it offers, But I also think that there's maybe a few misaligned conceptions around the destructive use of generative AI and its role more as an eradicator rather than an enabler, than an empowerer, which we've just highlighted with the example of being able to animate a simple sketch, which is fascinating and and we're not disputing that it's not fascinating. And it is something that I I also admire as a a fellow tech enthusiast. But where do you see from the other angle in the other spectrum, the role of generative AI in the future of work? And what does it mean for a knowledge worker, someone who maybe does the job of creating animations themselves?
1: I think it's going to be very assistive. A lot of the technology that's out there today is going to help us do our jobs faster, better, help us be creative. I almost think of it as a brainstorming tool, the way I use ChatGPT or some of these other tools. I don't need it to write my entire blog for me. But if it can help me generate ideas, help me expand on certain concepts, I've been using it to rapidly go through podcasts. So I'll listen to a great podcast. I'll upload it to Fireflies, like the audio file. And then I'll start having a conversation with Fred uh, about questions that were brought up. Why did so-and-so say X? How did they talk about this? try to connect different concepts. And it almost feels like when I'm a student back in college, if I could listen to lectures and all of this other information, it's giving me a new way to bounce ideas, brainstorm and process information at like lightning speed. So as a knowledge worker right there, like the way we I use Ask Fred, it's ability for me to help retain and absorb knowledge faster than ever before, because I can go back through important pieces of information and pull that out instantly, so that retrieval, that part, I just feel like if I had this technology or if I had built this for myself in school, I would have been able to go through hundreds of papers, you know, thousands of pages of reading. And everything would have been really, really fast for me in terms of productivity. Like we've been using uh, Copilot from GitHub, we've been using some of these other tools it's helping us do the mundane tasks faster. And it's helping us basically think about more creative ways to interact with the system. And one thing I will talk about, and it's probably contradictory to what everyone else is saying, is they feel like this new field of prompt engineering will come up where Mm -hmm. you can be an AI whisperer, you'll know exactly the right things to say to the AI to get the best output from it, and that there's an art to it, it's a science, it's something very qualitative skill set. To be honest, I think five years from now, we may not need prompt engineering at all because the system will get better, where you just changing a one or two words or reorienting them isn't going to get you that net value that you would assume. Right now, because the technology has gaps, it, we would need that, but I don't think so in the future. <laughs>
0: And I think that that is the exact point that I wanted to bring up following what you've just been talking about. Do you think in that sense that we are digital beings, that we're ready to jump into the boat and ask for this assistance? Are we capable of asking for this assistance? Because if you look at the demographics of the average knowledge worker, if we're also looking at the main de- demographic of maybe the disparing ages of knowledge workers, Do you think there's any differences in the nature of how much assistance we can ask for and maybe how much we embody this AI whisperer trait?
1: Let's take a look back at the time when computers just came out and they were command lines and prompts and people had to learn how to navigate directories writing command, uh, command line prompts, right? And then we had the GUI or the graphical user interface that came out. And when that happened, people had to know how to use a mouse, how to hit the exit button. Those were all taught skills. And those are skills that up to like my grandmother had to learn. And then when we had the iPhone, the touchscreen paradigm, the apps paradigm, or the iPad, where I have to move through different things, slide, swipe, all of those things. So these are all new paradigms that we had to learn. I wouldn't say they were natural in the beginning. I've done hundreds of UX studies, tests, like while working at different organizations, where it's a completely new behavior they have been showing how little kids, right, one-year-old, two-year-old babies have become sophisticated at using apps uh, on the phone, right, and being able to navigate through that and uh, use that for learning. So I think humans are very adaptable and they can learn and they can learn to interact with all of these different technologies. If we're able to do that with interfaces, even voice assistants like Siri, and learn how to type on a quirky, a uh, pretty keyboard. So there's a lot of these things that we've learned over time. You know, who knows what will happen when we go into augmented reality or virtual reality? Like that's another area. That's a new skill set that you have to learn how to interact there. But the one thing about generative AI is that it's teaching us in a paradigm that we're already comfortable with communication, language, mm-hmm. how we ask each other for help with favors, right? These sort of things. I've seen my mom use. ChatGPT I've seen my dad use ChatGPT I've seen like my sibling use ChatGPT and I've seen you know people at work use ChatGPT so universally they are just talking to it like another person and who knows maybe once the technology gets to that level where you can just have a conversation and it can help and assist in that way it might end up being the most natural way for people to work it might require some trial and error Hopefully, it doesn't hallucinate and go off the rails and say something crazy. Uh, but assuming we control for those parameters, I think it's a very natural extension and adoption will be easier. That The data shows it too, because when GPT had this technology out for almost a year, we had early access to this technology. They had the GPT playground for developers to go and play around. In it. Mm-hmm. it was not as user-friendly. All of a sudden, they go in and build this chat interface and in two months, it gets 100 million users. Same underlying technology, different deliverability. Mm-hmm. And now you see yeah. that difference, right? The so, pilot of the UI. Yeah, I think that UI it has a huge role to play. We're going to have more, more and more companies that start thinking about how do I seamlessly integrate the UI, the experience, and the technology so not to overwhelm the user. In fact, I think it's like the other problem with ChatGPT because you can do anything and everything it's hard for a user to like know where to get started. So that's that's the thing that I think for enterprise software, if you're focusing on specific verticals, specific things, when people talk to Fred, our AI assistant, we look at certain behaviors, what they like, what they don't like, but it's in the context of meetings and knowledge retrieval and getting answers to it. But even there, we've seen some very, very clever prompts that people have come up with. So instead of just saying, hey, you know, like what did so-and-so say on the meeting? they're able to say like, hey, based on this meeting, come up with questions and answers. Like if this meeting was a test, I had to turn this into a test, come up with a set of questions and answers from this meeting. And so I've seen students use it. I've seen other people use it where they're almost like reverse engineering what will be on the test using using this, right? And so that is really, really powerful and very creative.
0: Extremely powerful. Do you then see any trade-offs for knowledge workers? if it is implemented in an enterprise setting?
1: The trade-off will be that we will be more accountable for the type of work we do, and we'll be more accountable for the unique value that we bring. So if our entire strengths inside an organization are about, okay, I need to move X folders into Y area, I need to fill out these spreadsheets, those sort of tedious tasks will get automated or Chad GPT and these other sort of technologies will help automate those sort of things. And this opens up a bigger philosophical questions about the role of work, the economy, and like, you know, w- what happens? Our jobs going to be replaced? And I think I don't have the full credentials or expertise to talk about that at the economic level. But those are questions that will definitely be things that we will have to address. But the one thing that is extremely valuable for us as humans and what we do is how do we channel the technology or use that as an extension of ourselves? And ultimately the thought, the ideas. So if you want to write a great blog, you already have some ideas of where to go and you're having the system and you're using it to guide you, right? In, in in those directions. So it's really about the thought process, the ability to think, when a lot of people go to college, right? People used to make fun of like liberal arts education because, well, oh, what are you doing? You're just learning how to think, right? Like anyone can think, go solve a math problem. That's more important. So when the computation side is already being taken care of by AI, I actually think thinking and learning how to think is extremely valuable because that will help, you know, figure out wh- where to go with it. I, it's very unlikely that we can go and talk to AI and say, hey, come up with a billion dollar startup idea, go write the code for it, and then build it out for me. And so that we don't need any people to work on it. Very unlikely, but the people that would have to help and think through like different problems. Instead, I, hey, I have this specific problem. Uh, how do we think about it? How do we tackle it? And we also try to avoid subjective areas with our AI, right? Instead of, if you're having an interview, you could theoretically ask Fred, score this candidate on why I should hire them or why I should not hire him. It's gonna make up some answers that seem believable, but it will be still biased, right? Because if you mm-hmm. tell it to come up with five reasons why I should hire this person, it'll come up with five it'll reasons. Yeah, come up if with five, say, <laughs> Yeah, if you say, tell me five reasons why I shouldn't, it will. So that's where the human element is extremely important. And instead we tell people, be objective. Instead, ask it, what did this candidate say they were not as experienced with? That will give you better knowledge, Better, it'll give you the b- better information and equip you with the right context to make that ultimate decision. But you shouldn't let AI make that decision for you because that could end up poorly, right? And I don't know if that'll be the case 10 years from now, but it's still something to be said uh, about just don't let it make the object, uh, the subjective decisions. You should get objective answers and then make that subjective call.
0: Yeah. And that definitely underlines your argument around the whole prompting people, well, prompt engineering and teaching people how to think, the soft skill development of being able to communicate and ask the right questions. If we twirl it round and go back to how you're thinking and what you're thinking about with the uh, motion and everything that you're pushing forward at Fireflies. What do you see is not being spoken about in the generative AI market that pertains to actually what you're thinking about in motion and at Fireflies?
1: That's a good question because we ourselves are still figuring a lot of things out and we'll have to see where the technology goes, both in terms of cost because this sort of technology is quite expensive to in order to run, whether it's for an individual user or for millions of users. So cost and how will that trend down? We're betting on the fact that it will probably get cheaper, maybe open sourced over time. So I think the technology and the cost layer will dictate a lot of the business models that come out there. The other things we think about from our context is, okay, if technology is not necessarily going to be... The biggest blocker, like the machine learning and stuff is not the biggest blocker. How do we leverage it in a smart way, right? How do we help people make the most of this technology and be as creative as possible? They don't know all the things that they need to ask, right? The AI. So a lot of things that we think about is, okay, what are things people can get out of a meeting? Well, first, let's figure out what type of meeting it is. And... Two, let's figure out what type of things they want to answer from that meeting or what type of work that they're trying to do, right? If you're a salesperson, you maybe you're trying to pull out the budget, the decision maker, and then go fill out your Salesforce CRM. That, okay, great. We can build an extension around that and you can go and run it. So a lot of customizability, a lot of like building blocks. That's where I think generative AI is going to shine today, given the state of the technology. Instead of just giving people a blanket slate and saying it can do anything... I like to think about it almost like Lego blocks. So here's a really powerful function that it can do almost 90% of the time really, really well. Let's go build some workflows around it. Let's build some use cases around it. So everything we do at Fireflies is oriented around workflows and integrating this sort of technology into what you're already doing. For one of the things that we look at beyond what we're already doing today, and this is like the bigger vision for Fireflies is how do we become multimodal? Meetings are definitely where people spend a lot of time. It's one of the hardest data sources to process, right? Transcription, accuracy, speaker diarization, all of that. But can we apply the same sort of technology that we have to other forms of conversations, other forms of knowledge, documents, maybe emails, maybe messages, and how do we bring all of that seamlessly in one experience for end users? That's something we're thinking about um, in terms of the future of Fireflies.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting area. It takes me back to when I studied discourse analysis. Um, there was a whole model around uh, conversational analysis because I was a, I studied uh, applied linguistics in my master's um, and heavily focused on corpus linguistics, but also conversational analysis. And it's a very interesting, I mean, the intrinsics and the depths of what can be analysed and the importance of certain interactions, it's, it's fascinating. And you also focus on um, sentiment analysis as well, from what I believe. Which can be a a great tool in itself.
1: Yeah, we do sentiment analysis. In fact, we're going through our entire technology stack, things we've done using traditional text classification Mm -hmm. uh, vectors, embedding, all of that stuff, and saying, at what parts can we just replace this with large language learning models, and where can it perform well? Maybe like our sentiment models can be tweaked with LLMs. So that's how we're approaching this and seeing sometimes. Maybe you don't need LLMs to solve everything, but there's other times where I don't know how it does it, but it's magic. It's working really well. We should go go ahead and apply it. Right. So that's something that we have seen. And sentiment is actually a really important filter for our customers because they want to know when our their customers are happy, yeah, exactly. angry, like candidates, et cetera. <laughs> so sentiment tracking is really big. There's other other metadata as well, talk time. Like if you're on a call, is there one person hogging the conversation the whole time? So there's metadata level insights as well with this whole conversation intelligence thing that we do. So it's not just based on the text, but there's other like semantic stuff that you can leverage.
0: Mm -hmm. Which takes you into a whole different field as well. I mean, you can look at it from an educational perspective of sales enablement. If you're looking at the proportional distribution of who's hogging the talk time, maybe um, use it as a tool to, to enhance sale techniques as well. So there's a lot of fascinating use cases and um, again, we're underlining the emphasis of the empowerment and how it can be used to to empower individuals and organizations yeah, it'll be I'm curious to see as well like the hype cycle and if there is this craze for keeping the new darling in favor and everyone replace everything with large language models. let's see
1: I think the best solution for anyone that's going through this hype cycle is yes, there's going to be hype, but Customer problems will always be there. So focus on what problem you're trying to solve and how you can help them solve that a little bit better. Let's take an example, since we're talking about sales. What does someone have to do in sales typically? They have to do some sort of manual outreach. uh, Then they'll have to schedule a meeting. Then they'll have to have a conversation. Then they'll have to follow up, maybe draft a proposal, uh, RFP, and draft an email and send that over and then they'll have to get that approved and they'll have to go manually update Salesforce. Now imagine building a next generation sales automation technology where it can look at a person's LinkedIn and then customize a perfectly crafted outreach email. And then you have technology like Fireflies that's gonna have the meeting and it understands the context, uh, can draft up a document or report or an RFP. Then it can generate an email and send that out. And while it's doing all that in the back end, it's doing the administrative work like updating The timeline for this deal, the budget for this deal, who the decision makers are, et cetera. So, context, if it's available, you've just built an entirely new sales automation stack, right? That is smarter, personalized, and much more in tune with the problems that people are saying, uh, people are trying to solve. So, I can download a mass email automation tool, I still have to write the crappy emails (laughs) and I still have to send it and I still have to manually deal with everything and when people unsubscribe and all of that. So could we use AI and this whole personalization thing that we're talking about to create an experience where we're actually providing value to people and sharing things that are relevant? Personalization is what cuts through the noise. Yeah. And uh, we can build technology like that from the ground up. Yeah.
0: very much so. There should almost be a tool, though, that should analyze your daily interactions and the tools that you already use and how it could actually, you know, provide a recommendation of tools that you can use to automate <laughs> to automate what you're doing as well. So, Chris, it's been uh, fascinating. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join us here today on Redefining AI. We've certainly discovered a lot about generative AI and the knowledge worker. Would you like to share anything else before we end our conversation?
1: This was amazing. Uh, I I think there's just so many great ideas that are coming out of it. Even to your last point, I'm a huge fan of RPA, robotic process automation. A lot of those things today are built on visual cues. So even there, maybe LLMs and generative AI could be used uh, to identify. And this is actually a process called data mining or data process mining. Like Mm -hmm. how do you uh, understand things and figure out ways to improve people's productivity and workflows so yeah another great field you can apply LLMs to RPA it's going to be a game changer so anything you can think of right it's crazy You yeah thanks
0: and um, so I'd like to thank everyone else for listening today if you'd like to find out more about AI ML and search then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com thank you